Thanks very much indeed, uh, Yang and others, for inviting me to speak here at one of these great interdisciplinary endeavors uh, for the, from the Institute of Advanced Study at Warwick. Uh, integration uh, and uh, cross-disciplinarity has become quite a fashionable endeavor in the sciences now. If you're doing anything about uh, biology, systems biology is the name of the game. What is systems biology? It's about trying to look at a, a problem and integrate all the relevant components that you may need in order to understand the system you're studying. There's a famous quote by somebody called Sidney Brenner, a well-known Nobel laureate, how we go about modeling complex systems from the middle out. We don't necessarily assert that one level has priority over any other. That's to say, not that molecular biology rules and everything follows from that. We know today that what controls the behavior of organisms is a very strong, complicated uh, combination of factors involving what Dennis Noble will call downward causation. Genes are influenced by their environment. They don't dictate the outcomes. So too, in the question of understanding the origin uh, of, of time, or direction of time and its asymmetries, it behoves us to try not to believe that one level has superiority over the others. Indeed, in terms of integrating our intellectual endeavors, uh, work like that we're doing involved in today is particularly exciting because it's going beyond just a limited scientific view. We've got people talking about the role of time in uh, philosophy and uh, other aspects of human existence, and I'm trying to, to do that as well. I hope by the end of my uh, talk you'll understand the origin of this quote from Arthur Eddington. Uh, in any attempt to bridge the domains of experience belonging to the spiritual and physical sides of our nature, time occupies the key position. Why is that? Uh, before going any further, I'll just mention a number of people who've been influential in uh, my thinking in this area, and uh, that, that they date back over quite a long period of time. So uh, um, what I'm going to do here is try to give an overview of a lot of things which may be picked up by other speakers later on. Uh, time as experienced uh, hu in, in the human realm, which subsumes as part of its science, but of course it's a bigger realm than only the scientific one. Uh, but most of what I'll talk about will uh, be about the question of time in science, and it will be dominated by this tr tr tricky problem of how we reconcile reversible and irreversible uh, descriptions of um, scientific systems that, that we have to deal with. If I get time, uh, I reserve the right to talk about or skip over dealing with uh, discrete versus continuous time and some new approaches to trying to parallelize algorithms that advance uh, uh, systems in, in time as well as in space. Then I'll just come back at the end to an interesting notion of how reversibility and irreversibility can be seen as complementarity, complementary concepts in the sense that Niels Bohr had uh, when he originated that concept. So one of the great things about being invited to talk at an interdisciplinary seminar, it gives me a, a great opportunity to make quotes from some of my favorite poems. These poems are ones uh, that probably many people are famous, uh, are, are familiar with, and they capture the essence of hum the human experience of, of time. This one from Shakespeare, Ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate that time will come and take my love away. This thought is as a death which cannot choose but weep to have that which it fears to lose. This is telling us something strong about the irreversibility of time. Things happen 
uh, which uh, you can't uh, undo. Again, Ovid from Metamorphoses, time glides by with constant movement, not unlike a stream, for neither can a stream stay its course, nor can the fleeting hour. This is a, a particular favorite of mine. I don't think I'll read the whole thing, but it's uh, the full sonnet, Shakespeare's sonnet. It captures the same idea that's recurrent in much of his writing about uh, the role of uh, love as some kind of time invariant property with a lot of irreversible things going on around it. So towards the end, the quote says, love's not time's fool, though rosy leeks, uh, lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. How about this one? This is Edwards. Uh, Scott Fitzgerald's free-ranging trans, uh, translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The moving finger writes, and having writ, moves on. Nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. So these things are all assertions of essentially the irreversibility of times. So thing ha things happen, and they can't be undone. They're an essential component of the human experience. And if we're trying to represent uh, our experience in scientific terms, the question is, do we have theories which are sufficiently broad to capture this? Or in fact, is even the science that we're trying to do broken into bits and pieces that aren't sufficiently integrated today? If you look at other aspects of time in the general context of culture and religion, you, s you find uh, examples such as the Mayans, who had this belief that everything would repeat itself on an interval of 260 years, the Lamat. And in Greek culture, you can see Aristotle talking about life, a time, as a circle. Things have a natural movement of coming into being and passing away. This is because all other things are discriminated by time and end and begin as though conforming to a cycle. For even time itself is thought to be a circle. This is not idle uh, platitudes in the sense that there are examples in modern physics of people conjecturing that. And the, the, the Stoics were a particular group of Greek philosophers who believed in, or that they foresaw the, what would happen when all the planets in particular came back into the same configuration as they were then, that the lives of Plato, Socrates, and all the rest of the great good men and true would be lived again. So that they, have a, they had a strong view of this how have things changed over the centuries? I mean, maybe the role of the monotheistic religions has had quite a dominant effect there. Events such as, say, the birth and death of Christ, or when the Quran is written, are seen as unique and unrepeatable uh, events, special things that have happened. They're not going to be repeated, but they set trends for the future. And an interesting book by Mircea Eliad, uh, brings this out. He says, Christian thought tended to transcend once and for all these old themes of eternal repetition. So once you start talking about this the strong view of time in a linear sense progressing what could be irreversible time conceptually, then it starts to underpin some approaches to modern science and terms that we may wish to argue and dispute about, like progress or the deep time that's recognized in geology as essential for understanding how life has come to be on this planet. You couldn't sort of envision this if you believed everything was 
particularly cyclical. So these things have played a key role in some parts of our thought. The Greek philosophers, going back momentarily, uh, had differing views to some extent. Aristotle saw time as intrinsic and fundamental, while Archimedes didn't. Plato's worth considering for a few minutes here because uh, of an essential distinction that he brings out uh, in his Timaeus. Initially, that time was born when a divine worksmith imposed form and order on a primeval chaos. But the thing that's fundamental and really dominates his philosophy is this distinction between being and becoming. And being, in some sense, is a, a superior thing. It's all about something that's there, always there, eternally the same. Maybe in Shakespearean sonnets, it's love. Whereas becoming, which is the object of opinion and irrational sensation about coming and ceasing to be, is somehow never fully real. These ideas are ones that uh, have become interesting, particularly in, in the last century or, or so. Uh, the, the distinction between being and becoming. Philosophers like uh, uh, Henri Bergson, uh, who wrote uh, L'Evolution Créatrice and Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, Russell's collaborator, the early part of the last century, who wrote a famous tract called Process and Reality, promoted the importance of the notion of becoming. It's slightly harder to come to terms with. And there's an interesting book by someone who has had quite an influence on me, Ilya Prigogine, which has the title From Being to Becoming. So just another take on this from another philosophical side, somehow time is not something objective. It's neither substance nor accident, nor relation, but a subjective condition, necessary owing to the nature of the human mind. So now let's look at the science component of this. And I'm very pleased that Robin talked a fair amount before me, because it enables me to move more rapidly over this. If we're talking about a physicist's description of uh, matter. I'm, I want to just speak a little bit about Newtonian physics, uh, Einsteinian, both the special and general relativity very briefly, and then move on to quantum mechanics, because they all have certain things to say. But at, at, at a certain level, in terms of their concept of time, and an issue as to the distinction from being to becoming or the direction of time, uh, they're rather silent. They don't offer us much, Alvin already indicated. We have, we have a problem with time going backwards or forwards. There's nothing in the descriptions that tells you which is the correct way. And a good way of thinking about this uh, in, intuitively is just to imagine any event that you choose to think about being videoed and then projected on a screen. You can then have the liberty of running the, the video forward in the correct way or in the reverse way in which time is going backwards. And the challenge to you is, is there any difference? Can you tell there's a physical distinction between the system when you see it going forwards and backwards? And the, the real key thing is, as sh shown schematically here, with a, applying time reversal to a system which is as simple as two planets moving around a celestial body like the sun, is that uh, because the equations are time reversal symmetric, I flip t to minus t. The equations are invariant. So both uh, solutions going t forward or t backwards are solutions of the same equations. How can you tell 
which is right. They're both correct solutions. There's no distinction between them. And indeed, this is uh, the case with Einstein's theory, both of them. I don't need to dwell on them right now. Robin has spoken about them. They have this same curious feature. Invariance under time reversal, uh, you can't distinguish which is the true direction in inverted commas or which is the sort of uh, filmed version. How do you do that? Is that a, a reasonable requirement? Uh, general relativity at the level that I'm trying to convey it here doesn't tell us anything new in that respect. And indeed, uh, the reason for Einstein's curious comment down at the bottom here. It was written under emotionally constrained circumstances. His friend Michele Besso, lifetime, long lifetime friend, had died, wrote this sentence. For us who are convinced physicists, the distinction between past, present, and future is only an illusion, however persistent. For the reasons we're giving here, the, the equations allow solutions which run forwards and backwards in time. There's no way we can pick out any distinction. So the next kind of fundamental theory of physics, and remember what I said earlier, have we reached some unity of knowledge? Are these theories consistent with each other? Are they integrated? Do they have the same concepts of time? We're entitled to ask these questions of each of them. And quantum mechanics is a very peculiar theory, and you can we could discuss whether it's properly integrated with the other uh, fundamental branches as we go along. I mean, uh, first of all, quantum mechanics, as discovered and applied to the microscopic world, has necessitated a pretty major transformation in the way one assesses the description of these processes. In particular, the atomistic processes, the ones that Robin was talking about there with uh, electrons scattering phonons, can't be described in a deterministic way, can only give them a probabilistic framework. That means there's that intrinsically, there's nothing in the theory which tells us for certain what the outcome of any process is going to be. So there's a strong probabilistic element, but there's also this equation, which may, I'm not writing down too many equations, but this is one, and I'll show you a few more which look very like it later. I can write classical mechanics to look almost the same as that in terms of a probability distribution, this wave function, psi, the curious thing here is that if this is the, the, the way in which a state in quantum mechanics evolves with time, then this thing itself has the same time reversal symmetry. It's a slightly more subtle one. It's the T time reversal operator that Robin was talking about earlier. You don't just flip time. You actually complex conjugate as well. So if you know how to take the complex conjugate of an imaginary number, that hits you with a minus sign. T goes to minus T. And this, this side of the equation remains unchanged. And over here, the same. So it tells you that uh, Schrodinger's equation is itself time reversal symmetric as well. Another way of putting it, which is more, more grandiose, grandiloquent from a mathematical perspective, we're in the Mathematical Institute here, so why not, is to say the evolution of the system is unitary. It's simply saying the probabilities are conserved during the evolution. So it's a deterministic system, just as Newtonian theory is and Einsteinian theories are. And determinism is a key component 
of these reversible, irreversible problems. Because it means that if I know the state of the system, the quantum state or a classical state, at any particular point in time, I know everything about the system. This is Plato's being. It's there forever. I can propagate it backwards in time. I can propagate it forwards in time. I don't care. I don't need to know anything more than one instant. Everything else is entirely the same. It's just a unitary transformation. Which is why I think when Napoleon asked Laplace where he saw the role of God in his theory of the universe based on particles alone, he replied, I have no need, sir, of that hypothesis. For I know the place of coordinates, the motions of every particle in the universe at one instant. I will know everything that happens from that time on or backwards. Is this really a satisfactory theory of matter? Well, the problem in quantum mechanics is that it isn't, because in order to actually extract information and make comparison with experiments, you have to do things which are called measurements. And these measurements are a nasty and tricky component of the theory, because technically they're not in it. It's just an additional postulate. Again, mathematically bowing to John von Neumann, it's often called the projection postulate. And technically what happens when we make a measurement is from all these vast numbers of different possible outcomes, you look at what happens in an experiment, uh, a pointer on a dial goes to one position, that's the measurement. And you have some probability of that occurring. But the transition in your description of the system from what was this wave function, which was maybe a superposition of many things, has suddenly and dramatically transformed to a totally different description. It's some particular outcome. That's a huge transformation. That transformation is non-unitary. It's not probability conserving, and it cannot be explained by the Schrodinger equation. So you either just bolt it on and say that's how we interpret quantum mechanics, or you say the theory is not complete. And then we have curious other things, such as a measurement which is made continuously leads to something known as the quantum Zeno's paradox, that if you were to make continuous measurements of a decaying atom, you could effectively prevent it from ever decaying, because you just stop it from moving out of the state that you observe it. So there are some interesting challenges in quantum mechanics, and I may come back to those later. But now I want to go to thermodynamics. And instead of being a, the equivalent of a molecular biologist of physics, which is to say, the fundamental description of the laws of physics must be at some level. I'm going to remember Sidney Brenner, and I'm going to say there's this other theory, and this is the one you use to describe the world at some different scale, called thermodynamics. There are three laws of thermodynamics, and I'm only really interested in the second one. Uh, but that's the one, the most interesting law of physics with respect to time, because it's the one that distinguishes past from future. The, the first law is simply saying energy is conserved uh, in all processes. And the third is just trying to keep a handle on this thing called the entropy, which I want to talk about now. So this is, this, both one and two are kind of bookkeeping. This is where either the profundity lies or it's dismissed as something, as a, as a kind of consequence of deeper theories. And I want to talk to you about what it's saying. The, the, so the second law of thermodynamics is actually the one law which tells us there's an asymmetry in time. 
spares the equation, if you agree that uh, the second law is true, I will give you another proof from Eddington if you doubt it, then the second law can be just written as entropy is a monotonically increasing function of time, ds by dt is greater than or equal to zero. And of course, if I change time to minus time there, I get an equation which is not the same thing at all. So it's not this equation. Second law isn't, ti isn't rever time reversal symmetric. And if you talk, as most people do when they study it, most courses that undergraduates and others get in thermodynamics are equilibrium thermodynamics. That's the situation where the identity holds, namely the equality ds by dt equals zero. And that's a very odd state, a very special state. That's the end state of all thermodynamic evolution. When everything that can happen has happened, the system can do nothing else. It's in a certain degenerate state, and the entropy is maximized. And it's weird in a way, because although people talk about equilibrium thermodynamics and processes, nothing actually happens in thermodynamics because it can't. It's the equilibrium states where nothing is changing. But what's powerful about it is that we can use concepts that are similar to those in mechanics to determine the precise condition of a system when it's in equilibrium. These things are called potentials. So it turns out that you can make connections between often molecular uh, descriptions of matter and what will happen to the state of the system when it's reached equilibrium. But if we thought that thermodynamics was only that, it would be the equivalent of studying, of confining the study of medicine to the dead, because we'd only be interested in what happens to us after we've finished. We reach equilibrium when we stop eating. I mean, you know, never mind fasting. At the end of our lives, uh, equilibrium overcomes us, essentially. But our whole purpose in existence is, is to prevent that from occurring. So in fact, our agenda is not to do equilibrium stuff. It's to understand behavior matter out of equilibrium. But this is just applying the movie test to a large scale system. Remember the movie test that was applied to a Newtonian, Einsteinian, or even quantum mechanical system. You couldn't distinguish which way was the true forward direction from the, the fictitious reverse. Here, uh, you can. This is the bull in the china shop. If I showed you that video going forward, and then I showed you it going backwards, everyone would be able to tell me which was the direction in which the real time was evolving. Because loosely speaking, in these scenarios, we're talking about increasing disorder, the chance of you ever seeing some, something miraculously coming back into an ordered state is virtually zero. So here's the killer punch from Arthur Eddington about why you have to pay attention to this. If your theory is shown to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. So the challenge for the people who would like us to believe that their theories of physics are correct and they can't find uh, anything that breaks the time symmetry is particularly problematic from an Ed Eddingtonian perspective. If you're dealing with non-equilibrium systems, that's us, us, life in general, this is where we want to understand systems that are prevented from degenerating into their end state from which nothing more can happen. And you can do this experimentally. I think Robin mentioned it, for example, in scenarios which might be prototypical of living systems, chemical kinetic systems, where you simply prevent uh, a reaction from reaching equilibrium 
you do what people do in chemical engineering. You feed in chemicals, some process occurs, and you pull out products. But you never allow the system to just wind down. This is a scenario which is prototypical of a non-equilibrium system. So life is like this. We take things in, we get rid of material, and our struggle is to prevent ourselves going to the global minimum. So the question in thermodynamic terms is, do you have potentials or a predictive theory about what will happen under these circumstances? And despite quite a lot of effort uh, in the second half of the last century, I mean, not a great deal has been discovered here. If you have a linear non-equilibrium system, that means the fluxes are, not, are linearly uh, related to the forces in the thermodynamic sense. So you're rather close to equilibrium, but not at it. You might get steady states emerging. And those steady states, are, you might be conned into thinking they're equilibrium, but they're not, because they're, they're dynamical states. Well, then under certain conditions, you can show that the, the potential will be actually given by this thing called the internal entropy production, which is DIS, the, the entropy created by the system, by dt being minimized. So there's a kind of potential there. But once you start driving systems far from equilibrium, so the assumption of linearity fails, well then, uh, there's no thermodynamic potential available, in fact. And that means that all bets are off. It depends on the details of the system you're working with, what's going to happen. And so even there, there's a kind of bifurcation in the science. This is what's led in the last 30 years to the whole area, partly of complexity and nonlinear dynamics, that people just realized that in order to predict the behavior of such systems, we have to study nonlinear differential equations. And those nonlinear differential equations are extremely wealthy and rich. They have lots of unpredictability in them. They have multi-stability with bifurcations. Many of the great uh, advances in this field have been done by people at the Mathematical Institute here. But it comes ultimately from original contributions from people like Alan Turing showing uh, that, that the, these uh, sort of partial differential equations or ordinary differential equations which are nonlinear have the complexity in them that will predict what's happening to a macroscopic system. So just to go back to Poincaré here, because it makes sense to just remember one of his discoveries in the late uh, 19th century. It's called the Poincaré's recurrence theorem. You have a, a system a closed uh, mechanical system. He was showing uh, this awkward problem that um, you can't get an entropy out of it. Do you remember the Stoics? It turns out, you know, that if you, you can, the system will, it's a closed one, the Newtonian one, will pass arbitrarily close to the initial state at some point in the future. It may be a very long time in the future. So if the system is going to enjoy a recurrence like that, it's pretty obvious you're not going to get a monotonically increasing property like entropy to come out of it. And therein lies one of the challenges to reconciling a microscopic theory with, with a macroscopic one such as thermodynamics. How do we contrive to get these entropies out? Briefly, just talking about cosmology, because there are some connections, I don't think I have time to dwell on them particularly, uh, where, where cosmology is involved in this. The, the problems are, well, Actually, despite some people saying that we un sort of almost understand the mind of God, in the recent past, we've gone backwards. We now realize we don't understand of the order of 90% of the matter. 
in the universe that we're trying to work with. So it's, it's, it's wise in cases like this to be a little um, uh, uh, modest about what one thinks one is understanding here. But we, ha we have in the past had steady state models for the universe. There's a traditional Big Bang model, and there are time asymmetries in that, like uh, the initial singularity in the Big Bang is very different from final singularities by construction, because it's a white hole, and all the others are going to lead to things like black holes. We have cosmic inflation. We have quantum cosmology, which is part of this never-ending attempt to reconcile general relativity with quantum physics. And here's a nice quote from Roger Penrose, who tends to stand alone against a, a swarm of string theorists in resisting their attempt to claim they've understood everything about the fundamental nature of the world. It's my opinion that our present picture of physical reality, particularly in relation to the nature of time, is due for a grand shakeup, even greater perhaps than that which has already been provided by present day relativity and quantum mechanics. So then there have been things like the hate death of the universe. This is uh, Helmholtz's scenario about the universe naturally evolving to some uniform dispersed state, compliant with the second law of thermodynamics, which is supposed to wind everything down. But in fact, that assertion is not correct because uh, it overlooks the fundamental attractive nature of the gravitational forces, which mean you're not going to get something necessarily very uniform. But there are interesting current theories that if we do have uh, universes that will, or our universe might be continuing because of the mass balance in it to expand forever, it could reach states of zero mass density, which are ones of the kind that some people conjecture were the origin of the universe we live in now. So from some nothing in inverted commas, we get a physical nothing, which might be a quantum vacuum. And the fluctuations in that produce uh, things like mini black holes. The energy that's taken to build those things are offset by the gravitational interaction, but there's an entropy penalty also associated with doing that. So the entropic component of this drives the thing forward. And you can then see in this sort of scenario a never-ending expansion and then growth and continued expansion. So where do we go from all of this? Uh, it's usually a wise idea to try and explain things we don't understand in terms of things we understand better, which isn't often the case with questions to do with uh, the origin of the hour of time. People try to explain mundane things like why sugar dissolves in water or in a cup of tea in terms of things like cosmological expansion. Normally, we try to explain things the other way. If we understand something basic, we explain something more complicated like that. So, why not just try and understand something about the origin of uh, entropy in systems that we do think we've got a handle on? And this is going back to Boltzmann. Boltzmann's name may come up again later, but he's certainly one of the great uh, founders of uh, modern science. He was a pioneer for the existence of atoms and molecules when many people denied their existence, the, the positivists in particular. So he had a hard time because he, he was intent on trying to explain the second law of thermodynamics in terms of the existence of atoms and molecules. And how can you try to do that? I've suggested it's not as easy as it seems. And one of the key things in attempting that is instead of just describing uh, Newtonian physics in terms of the deterministic evolution of particles, we use a probabilistic description. And that means 
a bit like quantum mechanics now. I'm, I'm no longer trying to play God in a Laplacian sense and think I know where all these particles are, but I have some idea of a distribution where the system may be at any time. And it's possible to rewrite Newton's equations in terms of this probability distribution, which is a very complicated equation, substantially contracted there, because there are n particles in a system, and that n might be a very large number. It might be 10 to the 24 if it's a mole. So, but I can write the equation like that. That's known as Newville's equation. It's equivalent, exactly equivalent to Newton's equation. Oh my God, do you remember Schrodinger's equation? It looks very similar to that as well. There's no I, there isn't a, an I out there. I could put one in. The quantum and the classical Euville's equations can be written exactly the same way. So what I say about the classical is also true, modulo some specifics in the quantum case. So what Boltzmann actually did was he took this equation, which is correct in, uh, in Newtonian sense, and he sought to try, try to find a functional which he called the H function that had this interesting property of monotonic increase. You could argue, how could it be the case if you've got something called a Planck recurrence and so on? Well, uh, the way to do it was instead of writing only n particle distributions, to write it in terms of a hierarchy of single particle, uh, two particle, and so on, three particle reduced distribution functions. That itself is a, is an, is a sort of unending hierarchy because that you can know the behavior of one of these equations and use the correlation functions in the order above. And he did something which is just an approximation called the Stosszahl ansatz in which he closed the hierarchy by saying the two-particle distribution is just a product of one-particle distribution function. But once he did that, he ends up, I'm not going to show you the equations here, uh, with uh, what's now famously called the Boltzmann equation. And the Boltzmann equation has associated with it this H function, which has the interesting property of monotonically increasing. Technically, it's decreasing because it's minus the entropy. And so uh, to the extent that he, he achieved that, he had a kind of foundation for uh, well, connecting the two levels. And the, the issue here is then one of how do we handle real systems? Uh, and the suggestion I want to make, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, so I'm just trying to bring you the basic ideas is to recognize, for reasons we'll touch on, that a probabilistic approach is really the only one we can use, even for these classical systems. It's to do with the uh, intrinsic dynamical s instability of such systems. We can't know ever, actually, what the so-called initial conditions are. And what we do know is, for these types of systems, that however close the initial conditions would be, with time going forward, they will diverge wildly. And so you could only apply a deterministic description if you happen to know the initial conditions exactly. If you have a, 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 a system which was only one-dimensional and you needed the initial conditions, and the, the initial condition had to lie between naught and one, uh, any mathematician in the audience will know uh, that uh, if you choose a, a number to approximate the initial condition, that's essentially a rational number. But the, the rational numbers are a set of zero measure in that interval. The real state will overwhelmingly be something that you can't capture in any computation. So you, you are thwarted by an inability to do this thing in a, in a traje trajectory, tr uh, traditional deterministic fashion. If you do buy into that, you have a probabilistic approach 
which then en enables you to derive these kinetic equations, and the kinetic equations are the things that tell us how a system approaches equilibrium, which is what the second law is saying ultimately. The equilibrium state would be when the entropy is maximized. So there's a kind of way of handling this, and I'm only showing you this graphically in terms of pictures to get an idea of it. As you go to increasingly complicated dynamical systems, the challenge in, in modeling and predicting them becomes enormously different. This is like uh, Robin's pendulums and simple clocks. You're imagining an initial condition in this funny hatchet, uh, as it, the initial condition could be anywhere in there. If the system is simple and non-ergodic, it means compatible with the energy. It will just go round uh, in a closed way and do, perform various forms of periodic motion. If the system has this property of ergodicity, it will wander all around. But interestingly, uh, the simplest case where the, 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 initial, the set of initial conditions doesn't change in its spatial structure over time. So it's, it's sampling all of the phase space compatible with the energy. Then we have things where stuff starts to become radically different. The, the so-called mixing flows, situations where initially neighboring trajectories in the hatchet at the top here start to diverge very rapidly from one another. So as time goes on, this initial condensed space just starts to fill uh, the entire domain. So at the level of the probability distribution, as you can imagine, that such evolutions can end up giving you a uniform state in some area. The probability distribution becomes uniform. So even though there might be a Poincaré recurrence happening subsumed at the trajectory level on the level of the probability distribution, it's evolving in a single direction towards a uniform state. So the requirements we know we have to have to get uh, evolution that might have a chance of being compatible with the second law will need to be typically mixing, because mixing implies ergodicity. And this is a subject, again, that's well studied by mathematicians more than anyone else for abstract dynamical systems, which is simple enough to thoroughly analyze. People in the Math, Maths Institute here have been contributing to that. Uh, and, you know, for certain specific cases, you can be very clear about how this scenario works. The problem for practitioners and real scientists is that once you start dealing with, quote, real systems, which are less abstract but might have uh, complicated Newtonian equations of motion you can write down, to be able to prove the properties that you need in order to come up with a rigorous uh, description of a system which might have an entropy simply are... Are insurmountable. So in fact, most people working in this area today take the slightly embarrassing position that we assume, because that's the way the world is, systems do go to equilibrium states. The dynamical properties of these systems must be of this sort, rather than spending their lives trying to establish what effectively we already know. Well, that's uh, most of what I wanted to say. Um, I wanted to fit in a few moments, and I'm not sure if I should even dare to do this, on discrete versus continuous time. But there are interesting areas uh, which have immense practical uh, interest and application we're involved in today, where we treat time in our systems as, uh, as discrete rather than continuous. They're what we call lattice models, lattice gases, or even the lattice Boltzmann method. We imagine time and space to be discrete, and it's very convenient to do this for computational purposes. You can do quite a lot of things 
with the discreteness of these systems. What we, it turns out, you can do, we've known this for about 30 years, is providing you choose the symmetry of the lattice correctly and the particles that wander around, every tick of a bell, the particles move to the next site and they collide. There's a rule for the collision, which is the mass is conserved and the, and the momentum, that actually these systems give you uh, the behavior of the Navier-Stokes equation. So it's a way of solving fluid dynamics with a microscopic system, which is itself actually time reversal, time asymmetric at the lower level as well in general. And then you can do things uh, with fluid dynamics, which in detail, though I don't have time to go into it here, are really hard to do by just directly solving the PDEs of, uh, of continuum level mechanics. So you then, you, in fact, there's a whole story of developments now taking Boltzmann's work again from what he did in the continuous time and space case to the uh, dis discrete space and time case where you can derive Boltzmann equations and if you, in fact, in s devise schemes where entropy is is an entropy is defined and you ensure that the Lattice-Boltzmann scheme only updates when the entropy increases, then that's actually an, a condition on the stability of the algorithm as well. So we get some additional uh, benefits from, from the numerics this way. And then we're interested in now trying to do parallel uh, simulations here. One of the limitations in mathematical physics for most algorithms is that Annoyingly, they're all serial in time. You need to know everything about the system at one time step, and then we incrementally push it forward, just as Robin showed in one of his very first slides. But today, there's a lot of interest and, pre and pressure, in fact, to tackle systems which can jump to much longer time scales than the incrementing can on a computer. And there we want time parallel algorithms, which we can, we can develop with these tools. But I think I don't want to uh, go into too much of that now because time is short. I think I'll just uh, come to towards the end here. There's a curious thing that happens, you see, for un sufficiently unstable dynamical systems. Uh, you can actually, in certain cases, you can define if L was that Neuville operator which tells you how the dynamics of Newtonian dynamics evolves. There's another interesting operator you can define, which here I would call the ti internal time of the system or the age. And those two objects don't uh, commute in the sense of quantum mechanics as well. Uh, the, the fact that they don't commute, that their commutator is uh, non-zero, actually equal to i, is rather reminiscent of the uncertainty principle that we have in quantum mechanics written there, x comma p is ih bar. That's the reason why we can't know the exact position and the momentum of a particle in quantum mechanics. So by analogy here, for these complex dynamical systems which have such high levels of instability, we have some balance between knowing in nominally the exact dynamics and then having no idea of the, quote, age of the system. Or if we try to know what the age of the system is precisely, then the dynamics become indeterminate. So there's a strange complementarity here between the levels at which you want to describe the system. So here, finally, I would say science is still learning to deal with uh, the myriad challenges of time. There's plenty of things still left open. Broadly, I'm trying to send the message that probabilistic descriptions are ones that open the way to uh, irreversibility in thermodynamics. And once you shrink them down into 
their deterministic limits, which could sometimes be kind of singular ones and inaccessible, then you get the more conventional picture of mechanics and reversibility. So I think I would just finish with one reversion after all that heavy-duty science to another of these quotes, this one by Andrew Marvell. I hope people know this. Uh, and it just sh sh shows the sort of thing one is tr struggling to capture with one science. Had we but whirled enough in time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to talk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I, by the tide of Humber, would complain. I won't read it all, but then you have. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. That grades a fine and private place that none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport as while we may. And now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than language in his slow chap power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him bright. Thank you very much.